You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you as well, especially because I've been not seeing anybody for a very long time. Yep, it's been skeleton crew as Omicron goes through our office, and we try and stage it out so we're all still in there functioning. And I've been hiding at home. I tried to explain it to an adjudicator, and uh, then I realized they're all working from home. They've been working and from so, home since before. So they don't even really know what we're going through. And uh, my hope is that uh, that uh, it goes through quickly and that we're not so badly disrupted, but you can see that there's pretty significant disruptions happening all over the place. Yep. Not a whole lot of traffic enforcement. You don't see many police officers out there. You don't see many police cars on the road. And not a lot, a whole lot of traffic court because court is shut down completely. So, well, if they had traffic court right now, they'd be taking the very few members that are available, uh, and uh, and uh, they wouldn't have them on the road, so they'd have no enforcement. But you know uh, what they have had time for? What judicial reviews? I mean, you and I have talked before on the podcast about how judicial reviews—it's so hard to get heard because. If you want to book anything that's more than two hours, you have to call in and you never get a date through the phone lottery. We unsuccessfully tried again this week. And then judicial reviews. Also, if you're on the two-hour list, there's tons of other matters. But with in-person trials canceled in BC Supreme Court, all of a sudden there's a whole complement of judges who have nothing to do but hear our cases. A bunch of surplus judges sitting around. Surplus judges clearing the two-hour chamber backlog. I love it. So as a consequence, uh, you are conducting judicial reviews, and Louisa had a really interesting one the other day. We'll see what happens with that. Yep. There's a couple really interesting cases that have uh, come out and a couple bad news cases that have come out. That happens. Yep. So uh, one I did the other day. Um, and I think this case is important for two reasons, um, unsuccessful, unfortunately, but one part was successful. So I'm going to, I'm going to focus first on the positive. You know, I like to do that. This was a refusal to blow case. Yes. And, uh, the client had alleged that he was trying his best to blow. Uh, the officer had said that he'd said that he had asthma and that's why he couldn't provide a sample. And the adjudicator, um, considered sort of the conflict in the evidence. One of the things that she considered was that the individual, the driver, had said, I, the officer offered for me to do a blood test, and I accepted, but he never went and did my blood test. And the adjudicator, one of the reasons why she disbelieved his evidence that he was blowing his best was because she believed that the officer wouldn't have offered a blood test because there are no blood tests in IRPs, so he wouldn't have had the authority to do that. They do all sorts of things that they don't have the authority yeah, to do, and they say all sorts of things to people at the roadside that, that are not correct, not lawful, trying to, to bully them, threaten them, or cajole them into providing a sample. I mean, it's your requirement to provide a sample, but the police say all sorts of things. Yeah. How can you reject a... 
You know, it's entirely, I could just imagine a police officer saying, look, if you don't provide it here, I'm going to take you back for a blood test. You know, it's the type of thing an officer could say. But yeah, the adjudicator so the, rejected it because it's something the officer wouldn't have said. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, she said it was it was uh, not reasonable mm. for her to accept that evidence because the IRP scheme doesn't incorporate blood tests. And the court said, I agree with Mr. Barter's submissions on this issue. Simply because blood tests are not a part of the IRP scheme does not lead to a reasonable conclusion in the absence of conflicting evidence that the officer would not have offered to take Mr. Barter to the hospital for a blood test. I find, given the absence of conflicting evidence on this point, that it was unreasonable for the adjudicator to consider whether or not the off the police had offered to take Mr. Barter to the hospital for a blood test in assessing his credibility. Despite this finding, I'm not satisfied the adjudicator placed sufficient weight on it for to be central to the conclusion. But wh why I say this is the silver lining from this decision. Twice there, he says, you can't reject it in the absence of conflicting evidence. And we often have cases where our clients say things that conflict that are, with the police and the police don't have any evidence of that are it. not conflicted there's no conflicting evidence the police often say nothing and adjudicators nevertheless reject whatever our clients are saying but this decision seems to say that in the absence of conflicting evidence unless there's some other reason to reject what a person is saying it's unreasonable to reject it simply because you assume that it wouldn't have happened that way. Yeah, that so, makes perfect sense. Of you know, course, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take what I can get. Well, you know, it's funny because I, if I get a good decision, I read it and I read it over and then I just remember it for the one principle. If I get a bad decision, I usually won't read it unless I think that it's something that's worth appealing. And when you get a good decision, yeah, you use it and, and wave it over your head. But when you get a decision that doesn't go your way, you usually go through it, find the good stuff, and use it for some other day. Yeah. And it is really the wisest thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's my personal that I'm so hurt when they haven't agreed with me that I can't uh, read it. I'm so Whereas used to people not agreeing with me. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> you story just, of my life. You go through and you, you know, that's that's the tools of being a good uh, a good lawyer. I'm always proud of you when you do this because you always find these things in the dissent or in the whatever you know in the comments that they make along the way that you can use <clears throat> now the decision in this case is also instructive on two things that i and you have been harping on for years and one of them is that you should shut the f up when you're dealing with the police because part of the reason that this individual was unsuccessful, in fact, the majority of the reason why the adjudicator rejected this person's evidence in the review hearing was because he said to the officer at the roadside, I have asthma, that's why I'm not able to blow. And in the review hearing, he didn't say the asthma was the reason he couldn't provide a sample. He didn't provide medical evidence to show that he had asthma and that was why, why he was unable to produce a sample. He said that he was doing it correctly. And it's instructive because it demonstrates that if you're going to say something to the police, you better be darn sure it's right and you can back it up. Otherwise, keep your freaking mouth shut, which is always the best course of action. Which is really ridiculous because people are in a circumstance where they haven't got legal advice, they don't understand the process, they don't understand what the police officers 
trying to do. They're trying their best to come up with some explanation in a desperate circumstance where they're lacking information and then to have it used against them in that way, to me, is completely wrong and contrary to law. However, the point is, uh, you know, if you, if you say nothing, then there's nothing there to be used against you. Um, and that's why the lawyer told me not to talk to you. I always think that I probably wouldn't necessarily use my trademark line of lawyer told me not to talk to you. I might just say, don't talk to cops. Don't talk to the police. And uh, I'm thinking that I might trademark that line, don't talk to cops. <laughs> cops sure. ask you a question, you just say, don't talk to cops. Now, the other decision that we got, this was argued by Louisa in our office, um, also unsuccessful. Dang. Dang. Dang, nabbit. Yeah, too. But you know what? These decisions are good lessons. If you're out there, if you're listening, if you received an IRP recently and you're thinking about what evidence should I be getting, you know, we tell our clients what they need to get. But at the end of the day, we can't get their medical records for them. We can't get their their witness statements for them. We can't get the security footage at the bar or the statements from the server or the receipts. Like you have to do your homework to equip your lawyer with the material necessary to defend you. And this is this case is a good example of where the failure to have done the homework really factored into it. One of the things that um, was central to the adjudicator's conclusion in that case was that um, the individual who had said he hadn't consumed enough alcohol to put him over the limit, um, that he uh, was with his girlfriend all night while he was at this wine tasting event. And she never wrote a statement for him. He had other statements, but not one from the girlfriend, which the adjudicator found odd. I always find that ridiculous, too, because you have no idea what the circumstances are in their relationship. But you could explain you have, it. You could explain it. But, you know, you may be in the middle of negotiating, you know, your breakup or something like that. Or maybe you're about to be dumped and you don't want to go into why your girlfriend's not willing to do anything for you. Uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? At the same party, you might have been uh, caught looking at some other woman uh, <laughs> at uh, at the same wine tasting event and have your girlfriend not talk to you and hoping that she will. And then, you know, right up until the day before the hearing. I mean, again, there's just way too many variables and potential explanations that a, an individual should not have to go through. And this is just parsing and picking evidence apart uh, in a way that is is completely contrary to the way that humans live. And to me, it's just wrong. And I, I'm, I'm always disappointed that the court does not recognize what's going on. It's early decisions we had, uh, Kenyon and, and uh, there was another one that uh, spoke. Spencer. Spencer uh, recognized it without a pattern. But now you can look at the pattern in the decisions and you should be able to glean quite clearly from the pattern in all the cases that have been argued. And I know you're not, as a judge, supposed to be going outside of what's there in front of you. But when you can see this pattern in decision-making in all of these cases, one must come to the conclusion that they are not applying a standard, a, 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 a normal standard in the assessment of the evidence of individuals who are coming before this tribunal. Well, it's interesting that you raise that because there's a very odd aspect of this decision that I cannot reconcile intellectually. So one of the things that the adjudicator had relied on, this, this driver had said that 
after he got pulled over by the police, he had a coffee cup and in his coffee cup, there was some rum and it had been left there from the day before. And he took a sip of it and then realized that there was like rum or whatever in the coffee cup and he swallowed it down. And when the officer asked him about the time of his last drink, he didn't tell the officer that the cup contained alcohol. And so the adjudicator relies on the fact that he didn't disclose this to the police. Now, there's, there's sort of two lines of authority that have emerged from the IRP scheme. The one that says, if you lie to the police, if you're deliberately untruthful with the police about the time of your last drink, then that can negatively affect your credibility. And then there's the other line of authority. That Which says, is silly to me, but in any event. Yeah. I don't like it either for lots of reasons. But there's the other line of authority that says, if you fail to provide information to the police then that can't be used against you at any stage of an investigation because there is no obligation to provide information to police. Your failure to advise the police of something cannot be held against you. Essentially, silence is your best defense. But the adjudicator in this case relied on the silence. And the court is essentially faced with these two competing lines of authority, the superintendent characterizing it in argument that this was just the the driver being dishonest by saying that his last drink was much earlier, um, whereas the uh, uh, the um, Louisa had argued that this was not the driver being dishonest, this was the driver failing to provide information to police. And the court says in paragraph 39, Mr. Penza relies on decisions including uh, Chahal, one that we've talked mm -hmm. about on the podcast before, for the proposition that his failure to tell the police that he had not consumed alcohol cannot be used against him to impugn his credibility. In Chahal, Justice Skullrude found that it was unreasonable for an adjudicator to reject the petitioner's evidence regarding recent alcohol consumption on the basis that such consumption was not disclosed following the receipt of two fail results. This decision and others relied on by Mr. Penns, including Linares and Rangi, do not stand for the broad proposition that a failure to notify an officer of recent alcohol consumption cannot be considered by an adjudicator in assessing credibility. But that's, in fact, the very point of the commentary in those decisions, that the failure to advise police of your defense is not a factor that can be used against you. Chahal says that, Rangi says that, Linares says that. Linares quotes from uh, from a decision in, uh, called Boys that's unreported that says that. And I think what the court is trying to do, although very inelegantly, is say, but he lied to the police. But he doesn't, the, the court didn't quite get there. What they said was, the adjudicator found that it was unlikely that after accidentally, in quotations, taking a sip from a coffee cup containing alcohol, that Mr. Penns would not have mentioned this to the officer prior to providing a breast sample. I agree with the submissions of the superintendent that it was open to the adjudicator to consider this evidence in assessing Mr. Penns' credibility as a matter of common sense and ordinary experience, along with all the other circumstances in the review before her. In summary, the adjudicator's findings with respect uh, to recent consumption of alcohol were based on her conclusion that it was unlikely that Mr. Penns would have had a coffee cup containing rum and coke in his vehicle at the time that he was pulled over, that police did not report seeing him take a drink from his coffee cup when he was directed to pull over, 
and that if, if Mr. Pence had accidentally taken a sip of rum, it is more likely than not he would have told police he had done so before providing breath. It says breach, but he needs breath. In addition, the adjudicator considered Mr. Pence's untruthful statement to police when he was pulled over that he had not consumed alcohol uh, on the night he was pulled over and assessing his credibility. Based on all of these circumstances, the adjudicator did not find Mr. Pence's evidence concerning recent alcohol consumption to be credible. I think what the court is saying is that coupled with the fact that he lied and said he hadn't had anything to drink at all and that he didn't disclose this and everything else, that that was not an unreasonable basis to reject his credibility. But what I found very interesting, and I know you've got thoughts. Go ahead. No, I'll, I'll get to my more interesting point after. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I, I don't want to say it without thinking it through a little bit more. Okay. And I started going down a little bit different direction in um, being angry about something. So, so here's, <laughs> you, you here's, go ahead. here's the interesting thing. This decision was written by the same judge that wrote the other decision we just talked about, where he said it's not reasonable to reject somebody's credibility about a sequence of events where there is no evidence to the contrary. In this case, he says the police didn't report seeing him take a drink from his That's coffee cup. That's what I was cup. thinking. There's no evidence to the contrary. So how can you, as a court, on one hand say, well, it's not reasonable to fault somebody when there's no evidence to the contrary, and then say that that just wouldn't, I don't believe that that would have occurred. But at the same time, say, that's they not a reasonable... They didn't see it, therefore... They didn't see it, no. They didn't write it in their report. report. Whether yeah. they saw it or not... We don't know exactly, because yeah. they were silent. Yeah, the two things don't seem to be able to stand. They um, don't actually add up. And it's, you know, the judge wrote the two decisions at the same time because A, they were released on the same day. They were heard about a week apart or two weeks apart. And it's the same judge. It's the same judge. And there's even the same like copied and pasted lines about the reasonableness standard from Vavilov with the same grammatical error in both of them. Oh, cut and paste job by the yeah, judge. Yeah. <laughs> so what we always, so. Uh, 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 what we always uh, um, argue that police are not credible when they're doing that. It's different because the judge is not providing evidence. Uh, but, uh, and a judge can cut and paste and I'm not knocking him or her for cutting and pasting. Uh, but uh, judges these, these, can literally cut and paste an entire lawyer's argument and then call it their judgment. Yeah, um, and and that's fine. Um, but yeah, that's uh, seems to be quite clear. Two contradictory ways of of looking at it, and uh, those doesn't really make sense. And again, this gets back to this uh, applying this this method of analyzing evidence that's all in writing, and the tendency of the tribunal to go through and again subject the individual's uh, evidence to this high level of scrutiny rejecting evidence for ridiculous reasons and at some point the court's got to say this is ridiculous uh, because if the public could see the way that these decisions are being made and the way that our court is dealing with it they would be upset with our justice system because this is not what we expect yeah. and it's not that we have a, a trial you, know. you get the opportunity to explore that did you see him take a sip from a coffee cup what what were you able to see as he pulls up to your roadblock it's dark there's there's headlights on the car there's lights reflecting from street lights there's weather like 
Anyway, when you asked me what I was thinking a few minutes ago, I was just thinking how we should change some of the written submissions that we send in in IRP hearings. So Kyla sends in written submissions on various different issues on IRP hearings um, in addition to the oral submission she makes. And one of the reasons she does that is because they will just ignore uh, in the decision some of the oral argument that is made. And that's a fairly consistent thing that we see. I make oral arguments on um, on various aspects of the uh, of the scheme, and there's it's often never reflected in the decisions at all. And then sometimes your your oral submissions, which were very clear, are twisted around to suggest that it was something else, and you wonder if the adjudicator was confused or if it was just a, a desire by the tribunal uh, to do this. And I just think that uh, what I was thinking about a minute ago was we've got to change our submissions on the basis of these decisions to speak to that. Um, the the uh, uncontradicted evidence of the individual. Because so often our clients have a very detailed, thoughtful, clear explanation of what took place. So much better than the police report. Mm-hmm. So there you go two judicial review decisions not going our way, some nuggets in them, some inconsistencies in them, and I think the inconsistencies in the reasoning can also be used to sort of mitigate the damning effect of the one decision. Well, I think. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. We've got, uh, I think, three judicial review cases on reserve currently waiting for... Well, there's been some decisions that they just ignored. There's been BC Supreme Court decisions that the tribunal just ignored. Just ignored. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, if you lose, they'll use it. And uh, if, you, uh, if you're if you successful, they can just ignore it, I guess. So. That's how she goes. Um, second thing that I wanted to talk about today, um, and this was kind of two topics in one because we had two decisions, but the second thing I wanted to talk about was an interesting case about ride sharing. Do you remember before we had Uber and Lyft in BC? And uh, remember the before times when that was the biggest thing going on in BC news? We're bringing in Uber. Doug McCallum says no Uber for Surrey. Sure, and there was a bunch of uh, illegal ride sharing going on, particularly in Richmond. Uh, yes. That, uh, that was all taking place in Chinese. Uh, Chinese apps. Apps. So. so the police at the time were investigating this, and they were... Um, using these apps and they were essentially doing stings. They were downloading the app, um, ordering rides, getting in and then issuing a ticket to the driver once they confirmed that the driver would take them somewhere. So this BC Supreme Court recently ruled on an appeal, self-represented individual who's running a ride share through this app. He accepts a ride from an undercover officer the undercover officer walks up to the window of the car and says, where are you going? And, and he says to Surrey, and he's great, great, I need to go to Surrey. And he gets in the car and then issues him the ticket. Interesting case, because the argument of the self-represented driver was that he'd never violated the law because he wasn't running a ride share he was just offering to drive the person there or or alternatively his evidence was that he understood that he was just transporting something to Surrey um, but that no money ever changed hands so he didn't break the law because of the app no money changed hands well 
he never got paid because the ride was never completed. Oh, well, there you go. Except for yeah, the legislature kind of thought that went not, through. Not a great argument. <laughs> not a great argument because the legislation says that uh, you don't have to actually pay. You can promise to pay. Yeah. And booking it on the app is a promise to pay. Of course it is. So he lost that argument. But I thought, isn't there a more interesting angle in an entrapment argument there? Like, people in driving cases argue entrapment all the time in stupid situations, like speed traps. People are always like, that's entrapment! Or, you know, when they're peering from the bushes for cell phones, that's entrapment! Right? The difference between entrapment and random virtue testing, uh, or sorry, the difference between um, random virtue testing, which is entrapment, and something that isn't entrapment is, like catching people when they're committing a crime that they're probably going to commit anyway. I think this is more similar to a dial-a-dope circumstance where... Right. Yeah, so I don't think entrapment's going But anywhere. the entrapment cases on dial-a-dope have found that if you just kind of randomly do, like, randomly call numbers without knowing, without having sufficient information to believe that that is linked to the commission of an offense that that can constitute entrapment. Like, if you just get told as a police officer, hey, if you call this number, you can buy drugs, that's not enough. And that amounts to entrapment. Yeah. So where is the line on the app? Because the app might be something that people can use outside of the lower mainland, right? It may be Washington. Yeah. Right? This was the before times. That's true. Yeah, I mean, the app is a potential international thing. Yeah, it's not grounded by borders. So just because you download the app and somebody accepts a ride, is there an offense? Don't you have to know that it's occurring in a particular place? In fact, part of the test for entrapment when it's like based on, and this is actually going to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, part of the test for entrapment when it's based on like a digital technology is, you know, it used to be that, that police wouldn't, weren't committing in, entrapment by, like, going to music festivals and offering to buy drugs at mu music festivals because they had good reason to believe that the offense was taking place in that particular location or hotels which were being used for child trafficking where they'd have officers pose as, like, 13-year-old girls. Um, again, they'd, they'd have reasons to believe that that particular place was connected to that particular crime. But when it's a digital space... Because place is not defined by any location. Well, yeah, maybe you got know. something there. I don't know. I feel like... I guess I, I would say when it comes to this as a ticket... Um, <laughs> it's not worth the uh, the $15,000 it would cost you to run an entrapment argument like that? Well, I, I think the standard is very different when we're talking about uh, uh, criminal offense. Yes. Um, and so I think that um, the police are got to be permitted to have certain tools, and this is a pretty non-intrusive tool, and you're not exactly, you know, in getting somebody to to uh, uh, agree to hire a hitman. We're so talking about we're talking about a traffic ticket for for running an unlawful business. And so it's, you, your your view is that because the consequences of the ticket are lower the police should have more latitude because I actually think because it's less serious of an offense, the police should have less latitude because there's less of a public interest in the prosecution of it. I think it's more an issue of regulation. Um, 
and, uh, and, and, and it's more of an issue of regulating yeah, business. That's, that's turning the police into the tax man. Two weeks ago on the podcast, you didn't want to turn the police into the tax man. No, I'm usually okay with the police being the tax man. <laughs> Yeah. Depends on the circumstances. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, so that that I thought was a very interesting case. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and an unsuccessful appeal and also a lesson in maybe why you should consult a lawyer for your ticket because you might have a better argument or at least one that maybe would result in... Well, that individual, as I recall, ran his trial, lost his trial, and then appealed it to BC Supreme Court and then lost it there. Is that right? That is, that is the same correct. One? Yeah. That is indeed. So he's put in a lot of effort, and uh, probably if he had a lawyer, he would have uh, sorted it out in provincial court, got it done, and, and likely not ended up with the uh, level of consequences that, uh, that uh, he or she ended up with. I think it was a guy. Now, very quickly... Because uh, I know what you really want to get to. I want to talk about this recent dangerous driving case from the BC Supreme Court. This is a dangerous driving causing death. Um, It is uh, Helms something. Um, Heth Clems. Sorry, I don't know where Helms came from. Heth Clems. And this is a case involving an accident on Highway 1 in Abbotsford. And um, essentially, the accused was driving a motorcycle, a Kawasaki Ninja. He's whipping it down the highway aggressively 40 kilometers an hour over the speed limit um rode on the shoulder to try and pass a vehicle like an suv that was traveling around 80 in the 100 zone um or sorry no it was the 80 zone so the vehicle was traveling at the speed limit and he goes on the shoulder to pass them um doesn't pay enough attention and somebody slams on his brakes um there's a, a lincoln navigator and he essentially crashes into the back of it, and it actually causes a, an accident that leads to somebody else dying. Okay. Surprisingly, the motorcyclist lives. That's a rare occasion that I the know. motorcyclist lives. It's like almost enough to get you featured as the ridiculous driver of the week, but yeah, not. except he killed somebody. Except he killed somebody. I try not to make the ridiculous driver of the week somebody who killed somebody. We had the exception of the police officer. Yes. Um, who actually didn't... Well, he did kill somebody, but... He was acquitted of that part. Anyway, go ahead. So I wanted to talk very briefly because dangerous driving is so interesting as an offense because the actus reus and the mens rea, in many many offenses, right, your, your actus reus and your mens rea are completely different, right? You, you can have the mens rea for murder, but if you don't stab somebody in the heart, you're never going to be convicted of well, murder. <laughs> if you didn't kill them. If you didn't kill them. If you didn't stab them in the heart. To kill them, right? Um, So with dangerous driving, they're not. Like the actus reus is the driving and the mens rea is the marked departure from the standard of a reasonable person in the driving. Which really... Makes no sense. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. So... However, you got to have an offense and you can understand the offense has to exist... The crown, you, and you've got to draw certain assumptions that a person intends to drive that way. Yeah. So the Crown looks uh, argues that this person's guilty. They're ultimately convicted. And they say the, the actus reus is easily proven. That um, the driving leading up to it, the fact that he was traveling no less than 100 kilometers an hour uh, in an 80 zone, um, that he ultimately exceeded the speed limit. Um, there was other traffic that you could reasonably expect to be present. It was a warm Friday night in the summer. You haven't, um, you haven't persuaded me yet. 
uh, and uh, he was clearly catching up to slower moving vehicles that were there to be seen and impossible to miss. He took his eyes off the road for longer than would be prudent, um, such as, uh, and uh, um, these are all things that were essentially the actus reus of the events. And then the Crown's position. I'm not persuaded. Well, this is weird to me. The Crown's position on what the mens rea was, the guilty mind of this driver, was that he'd never uh, or operated the motorcycle before, that he drove aggressively, including driving on the shoulder, that he drove 40 kilometers an hour above the speed limit at one point, that he failed to pay proper attention to the road ahead of him while he was speeding, that a reasonable person would have foreseen the risk of speeding and failing to maintain a proper watch and take his steps to avoid those circumstances, and that his failure to foresee the risk and take steps to avoid it was a marked departure. Half of that is the same as the actus reus. I am not persuaded that this is dangerous driving. Well. I mean, there's an accident, and every time there's an accident, everybody's like, oh, it was dangerous driving. I mean, this to me is driving without due care and attention. Yeah, well, I've, he's convicted. Yeah, I see that. He's, uh, he's, um, uh, was found guilty, ultimately, of dangerous driving causing death. And the court says, reasonable drivers speed and reasonable drivers take their eyes off the road. But I find that a reasonable driver traveling at least 100 kilometers an hour in a Navy zone, catching up to a slower That's moving... only 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Uh-huh. Catching up to a slower moving vehicle would not divert his or her attention from the road ahead to look at an accident on a parallel roadway for more than a fleeting glance without slowing down markedly in recognition of the traffic ahead. Wow. I He's think this literally is quite convicted appealable. for being a looky loo. Wow. Yeah. Well, after the podcast is over, tell me who counsel was. I I am <laughs> That's a bad decision, as far as I'm concerned. Should be appealed. Yeah, I uh, I was kind of surprised at oh. this judgment. But in any event, Paul, okay. do you know what time it is? It's time for... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week! Ridiculous driver of the week. Honk honk. <laughs> uh, I don't think you want to say honk honk this week, Paul. <laughs> so this is a a poor fellow who came up with the stupidest. Another example of why you never say anything. Because when you say some things, even when they're designed to prove your innocence, sure make you look guilty. Um. A routine traffic stop turns into a search for concealed drugs. Oh, this case. Okay, yeah, I wondered how they ever got to that search. Yeah, it's it hasn't been clear from the news stories that I've read, but it's somehow this traffic stop turns into the police strip searching a guy. Yeah. And they find that he has a bunch of drugs, like, wrapped around his dick. Yeah. Am I allowed to uh, say dick on the podcast? Of course you can. It's your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Wrapped around his penis. Um, and Very yeah, funny. he had like uh, two different, he had cocaine and something. Meth, I think. And uh, so he's pulled over. He's got this wrapped around his penis. And of course, what does he tell the police? It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not mine. Yeah. Um, 
the, uh, maybe it's not. Maybe he's under duress. Maybe, he's, you know, some family member's got a gun to their head and he's got to transport this, this, uh, uh, these drugs wrapped around his penis. Um, but, uh, and how they got to the searching him and checking out his, his Johnson. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But in any event, the... Uh, I like the not mine. Cause like, but it's the not mine. And, how do you and really, not know? And, the, you know, the two things that they have to prove is uh, is um, really that you, that you have knowledge and control over it. Mm-hmm. And uh, clearly you, you have knowledge over it and control of it. Um, and I suppose the other defense would be that, you know, some other... I don't know. I mean, there can be a not mine defense, obviously, if it's like in the car, or it's in the back seat and you borrowed the car or lent the car to somebody else, there might be a defense there. But anyway, wrapped around your penis, not mine is not it, likely. It, it reminded me of the uh, it, I, season I would accept, finale. I would accept the adjudicator rejecting that argument. It reminded me of the season finale of um, of Career Enthusiasm this season. One of the scenes where Larry is talking to Leon and they're talking about how you everybody's always aware of where their dick is yeah at all times you know where your dick is you have total dick consciousness pretty much yeah i mean i wouldn't know but i yeah anyway i accept that um but so yes not a defense is likely to work and again this is one of those cases where if the adjudicator was to reject his uh, evidence on the basis of that statement to the roadside I would accept that, but the uh, adjudicators rejecting them in, in so many other circumstances where the persons, you know, ask about when did you have your last uh, drink and they don't give the time of the yeah. finishing the drink, <laughs> they give the time of starting the drink or they're sitting there thinking it through you know, and, and then they're, all is, of their evidence is rejected as a result. Maybe this is part of the problem of being an adjudicator like on a specialized tribunal where you're dealing with something that is a criminal or quasi-criminal investigation. At least starts as a criminal investigation, right? It's criminal code demand. Maybe that's the problem. Like I hate to shit on our ridiculous driver of the week by turning it into more of an intellectual discussion, but like in the provincial court, judges hear stuff like the guy had drugs wrapped around his dick and he said they weren't his all the time. And you get this great, fantastic cross-section of human behavior in a cross-section of scenarios. You're also usually sitting on small claims and provincial court family matters. So you're hearing the way that people communicate. You're hearing the way that people deal with police in all sorts of different situations. And I think you develop a more nuanced understanding of behavior in relation to state officials than you do only seeing paper cases over and over and over where there's no compellable evidence, no cross-examination, no testing of the evidence. And anybody who's ever been pulled over by a police officer who's behaving like a jerk n- knows that this there's a certain way that they some do it. Mm-hmm. And many will not. Many are just absolutely lovely, but some are awful. And, and it's a pattern. It's something that's taught to them. They learn it somewhere in, in through life or cop school. And yet the adjudicators don't see that variety of behavior because they only see a certain type of case in pre-printed forms yeah. with check boxes. Yeah. And that's how the evidence goes to them. Yeah. Makes it look like everything's good. You know, I was looking at the ADP form today. 
and it skips over all of the all of the important information with respect to an ASD demand. Well, it doesn't, doesn't tell really you, matter. Doesn't tell you when the police officer first starts to engage with the person. Doesn't say when they made any of the observations they made. Doesn't say. Uh, doesn't prompt for anywhere asking for an opinion. But Paul, doesn't you know? It's just a complete and it's a it's 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 it, it, it is it's. I mean, it's reprehensible. Because why? It's, but why would the police have made an ASD demand if they didn't have the grounds to do so? Yeah. Exactly. Um, the, um, the, 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 these assumptions that the police do things correctly in circumstances where we so often see them violating charter rights, uh, is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's just wrong. And I'm amazed that, uh, that the court permits this a lot of the time, but in any event, that's the way she goes. Don't be a downer. Drugs on the dick. They weren't his. <laughs> yeah. I quit. <laughs> I'm, uh, Believe him. The, uh, <laughs> Go right ahead, Kyla. I think that's you've just ended your career as a, yeah, as a judge. You're never going to get no appointed. To, you're never going to get. You're never going to get appointed to any bench. Not that you ever you wanted imagine. to do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Um, that's also why I would never be a judge because I'd quit everybody. I'd be. I'd be like, this police conduct was bad. He sneered at the guy. <laughs> okay, this is our podcast. Um, this is getting too off uh, topic and too fun. And if you need to call us because you've gotten in too much trouble with your driving, had too much fun even. <laughs> give us a call at 604-685-8889. Or find us online, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.